Romans chapter 3. Can you believe that? Oh. <laughs> chapter 3. Still. What are you Finally. Getting close Finally. To Finally. Finally, yeah, right. <laughs> Romans chapter 3. Verse 21, running start. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who faith. For faith. We make a verb out of the word faith here. We drop believe because that's a very poor verb for this concept. We take the noun faith. And we'll make a verb into it, which is what Greek does. So from faith to faith, I am faithing, you are faithing. Faith. Faith. Well, we're talking about being clean. Faith in your faith. That's right. Faith. Very good. And faith. See, it says that right here in my Bible. <laughs> that's the one that's been erased three times. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who faith. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. Now, sacrifice of atonement. If you look on this page that I handed out to you, you see at the top, there's, there's the imputed righteousness and the imparted righteousness definition from last week. Imputed righteousness, to be considered as righteous as Jesus, to be declared not guilty of sin due to the sacrifice of Jesus, to have God's righteousness ascribed to you. You are not righteous, but you're considered righteous. All right? Imparted righteousness, however, is to actually have the righteousness of God become part of you. You change. Not all at once, but slowly, incrementally, over time, in the process known as sanctification. So you have imputed and imparted dikaiosune, or righteousness. Imputed is what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. When it says they are now justified, the same word is righteous, righteousified. They are now righteousified by his grace, unmerited, unearned favor, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. You'll notice I have a, de a definition of to propitiate, transitive verb, and it means to win or regain the favor of a God, a spirit, or a person by doing something that pleases them. To pay for something. It is... Um, um, I've heard it irreverently described as a bribe. <laughs> uh, propitiation is the noun. 
And of course, it doesn't help that the, the, the dictionary defines it with the word itself. The act of propitiating. Yes, that's helpful. <laughs> thank you, thank yeah. you, Webster. The act of propitiating <laughs> or appeasing a god, spirit, or person. Both of these, both of these definitions here, reflect why the term propitiate is very weak. For the translation here, sacrifice of atonement. Some translations will use the word propitiate or propitiation. Some will use the word expiation or to expiate, which is a transitive verb and it means to atone or pay for guilt or sin, which is a more like a transaction. It's, it's more of a juridical or economic transaction and is actually the stronger translation here than propitiation. Um, it's, it, it's in part due to the change in language uh, in English language over the years, but propitiation has lost its meaning in modern English for the most part. Mostly, you very rarely ever hear anybody say propitiation. I'm going to propitiate you, which means I'm going to bribe you. No, you never hear that. Um, but it, it, it is a weaker translation in modern English, whereas expiation or expiate is stronger because it means literally to atone or pay for guilt or sin. When someone has broken a law and been charged a fine and you pay it, you are literally expiating that fine. The, the, the question is, how do you translate the phrase in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, expiation, sacrifice of atonement? Now, the New Revised Standard uses sacrifice of atonement here, which is a meaning translation of the word in question. The word in question is this last definition that you see here, elasterion. Now, it, the I at the beginning of the word requires you to give it a breath or an aspirant, so it comes out elasterion. You see the Greek word, you see the I, L, A, S, T, Eta, Rho, Iota, O, and Noon. The, the, you see, you see Elisterion in Greek. And then I gave it a transliteration into English letters. And then I pulled the definition out of Bauer. The means by which sins are forgiven. The means of forgiveness or expiation. The location or place where sins are forgiven. In traditional translations rendered mercy seat, place of forgiveness, place where sins are forgiven. See Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. Let's hold on that for just a second. We're going to go there for just a moment, but let's look at the first part of it first. The means by which sins are forgiven, the means of forgiveness or expiation. Now, Lesterion is a technical religious word in Greek and is directly related to the process of making payment for sin. And that is the word that is being translated in the New Revised Standard with sacrifice of atonement and some translations with expiation or propitiation. When Jesus was placed forward or given by God as a sacrifice for our sins, he became our hilasterion, our sacrifice of atonement. He paid for, his death on the cross paid for our sins. 
All right? That's the basic idea here. But it's more than that. If you go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, you see a description here of the earthly sanctuary. The, the tent was constructed, verse 2, the tent was constructed, the first one in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. This is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies. This is the tabernacle in the wilderness that's being talked about here. In it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, in my New Orbi Standard, they help us here. There's a little C out to the right of the word seat. And if you look in the note, it says, or the place of atonement. And in Greek, the word that is used here, mercy seat, or translated here, mercy seat, is helasterion. The place where the blood was brought in by the priest and sprinkled to make restitution, expiation for the sins of the people. The mercy seat, the place where the sacrifice of blood was made, the place where the sins were actually forgiven, is, is called the helisterion, too. So it's the act of doing it and the place of doing it. Helisterion is the act of making payment for sin. It is also the place where the sin is paid for. Okay? With that in mind, go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Whom God put forward, I'm going to back it up into verse 24. They are now justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement, as an hysterion. He himself is the atoning sacrifice. <clears throat> His act of dying on the cross, the shed blood on the cross, is an atoning sacrifice itself. According to the old Hebraic process of payment for sin in the sacrificial system. Actually, while that is true, that is correct in Christian theology, what actually is more important here for us is that he is the place. He himself is the place or one or being or entity or person of salvation, of helisterion, of payment for sin. He himself is the place where our sins are put to death. He is the sacrifice, yes, but more importantly in terms of Christian theology, he is the place where atonement is made. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the helisterion by his blood, effective through faith. So Jesus himself is the helisterion, in essence. Now, if you take a look at how scholars, both uh, mostly Christian and Christian Jewish scholars, have looked at the Ark of the Covenant as a type of Christ in terms of interpretations, it works very well. 
the whole idea that Christ Jesus is, since he is the one who died for us, it is he himself who is not only the sacrifice, but the very location of sacrifice. It occurs within him. He takes within himself and wipes it out. For those who have a problem with the idea of blood sacrifice, and there are lots of Christians who do, this is a very helpful theological understanding because Christ becomes sort of the infinite bag, good hole, into which you can pour unlimited sin and it be completely wiped out, completely destroyed by the infinite good and perfection and righteousness of Christ. If you have a finite amount of sin, and you dump it into an infinite amount of righteousness, what happens to that finite amount of sin? It gets diluted to absolutely nothing, which is the idea here. So Christ is the place where our sins are, are poured, dumped, projected, and the sin becomes totally diluted to nothing in him, wiped out. So I have no trouble with sacrificial theology in the sense that it is a type, a shadow of the type of Christ. I have no problem with it. But some people do, and therefore it's a nice idea to be able to say, in addition to this blood theology, you also have right here in the meaning, and Hebrews talks about it too, you have here in Romans this idea that Christ is that helisterion himself, the place where sin is wiped out. Paid for, yes, totally diluted away. So that is what is being meant here. You notice know, it's a very long sentence in most translations. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the sentence, which is at the end of verse 22. For there is no distinction, distinction between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There's no distinction to be made. We're all, we all come to God on the same ground, not through works and faith, but through Christ Jesus, through his grace. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified, the Gentile Christians are, and he, remember he's writing this and he's speaking to, at this point in time, mostly Jewish Christians. They, the Gentile Christians, are now justified by his grace, unearned, unmerited favor, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that is in Christ Jesus himself. He himself is the Redeemer. Whom God put forward as a, I'm going to translate it back into Greek, whom God put forward as a helisterion, by his blood, effective through faith. He himself is the helisterion, the sacrifice of atonement, the expiation, the one who wipes out, pays for, does away with our sin. And it is by the function of the sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, by, which is by way a code word for the giving of his life for us. 
the life of the soul resides in the blood in Hebrew theology. And therefore, by the shedding of his blood, he died and paid for our sin. His death puts an end to our sin, wipes it out. Our, our sin died in him. And while it is, as we find out elsewhere, for the whole world that he died, for absolutely every sin that has ever, will ever, and is being committed now, he died for the sins of the whole world, but the effect of it doesn't get to the whole world. It only is effective through faith. Now the question is, what is the object of faith? Christian interpretation generally is Jesus. And as we talked about last time, it's uh, uh, the, the, the issue in the object of faith being Jesus' faith and what Jesus did, while it is a sure and certain roadmap, it's not necessarily the only one because we have evidence from the Old Testament of Abraham who did not know Jesus, whose faith was accounted to him as righteousness. And therefore, it is the principle of turning your will over to God and following God's will. For us, it is definitely God's will for us that we, our faith be focused in Christ Jesus. But because of what Jesus did, God can accept the faith of anyone if God wishes. You're saying that then, then that then it's starting to make a lot more sense that there's another, there could be another Philistelian, however you pronounce it, out there by what you're saying. Uh, no, I would say that I would say that Jesus is the only Hilasterion, period, end of line there, but that by faith in God, let's use Abraham, by Abraham's faith in God, his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. So even though he did not know, it was, he was way before the building of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, which is the shadow of Jesus. He's way before Jesus. Nevertheless, his faith in God, his trusting action in the promises of God, was accounted to him as God's righteousness. So although he didn't know the Helisterion, he couldn't name the Helisterion, nevertheless, the, 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 the forgiveness, the righteousness of God was applied to him. But you could also say that Abraham did have faith in Jesus because Jesus was with the Father. And yes, by in other words, it was, it was, an, it was a, a faith, though he couldn't name the name. He did not he didn't know, know the details. He didn't know him by that name. He didn't know him by the name of Yeshua. He didn't know about his death on the cross for our sins. He could not make a conscious affirmation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as we talk about today. And due to what he did for us on the cross and his death and resurrection. But nevertheless, it is through Christ that it ends up going. You're correct. But he just can't name him. Doesn't know to name him. Doesn't know how to. Because he predates him. That place where this all occurs, in the presence of God, which is Jesus, mm -hmm. is going to be the same. Uh, in the end, yes. But there is no other hellasterion. If anybody comes to God, they come to God through Christ, period. 
Now, whether or not they actually know his name, <laughs> know what he did, is another matter. This is what we talked about last week. I like the idea of, of noticing this that Jesus is himself the hilasterion, because that really, really, really opens up the understanding that it is he himself who is the focus of our faith, and what he did and his faith that empowers our faith. I mean, you can talk about the historic event of the crucifixion and resurrection, if you wish. I, I have and I will and I, and I do, but if it's just history and doesn't connect to, to us today, if Christ isn't alive now with us and within us, if the Helisterion isn't accessible to us now, then we've got a problem. We've got a problem. He did this. To show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies, righteousifies the one who has the faith of Hey, go by that again. <laughs> you run that bias again. That's a, it that's was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies, God justifies, the one who has the faith of Jesus. Ton ek pistuos Jesu. Ek, in the genitive case as we have here, always means of. We talked about this before, but here the good news is we don't have to just deal with the case of the words. We actually got the preposition ek to do work with, which settles it. Faith in Jesus is, I would say, a weak translation. It's the faith of Jesus. Now, we have to have the faith of Jesus, which means faith in Jesus. But the strength here is that we have within us a bit of that hilasterion. A bit of that now imparted righteousness. We're not just declared righteous, but now we have a bit of the imparted righteousness. We get a bit of Christ's righteousness within us. It starts to change us. It starts to transform us. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies, righteousifies the one who has the faith of Jesus. So he can give us then a uh, wiggle room because we really, one week it was in or of, and I had it down there with a question mark, and the next week it was, you got to have the faith of Jesus, not just in Jesus, you got to have the faith of Jesus. Well, how many Jesuses were there, really? <laughs> We've been over this several times. <laughs> <laughs> this is the third time. Yeah, we're getting ready to move on. <laughs> like, you right. thought he was just quick reading over it? No. We've right. been there quite a while. Three weeks. You're debating over prepositions. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Trust me. But this paragraph, that verse 21 through verse 26, is absolutely critical. To any any Christian understanding of salvation, 
It really is. It is the core also of means of grace theology. The grace of Christ on the cross for the sins, the death of Christ on the cross for the sins of the whole world, the unmerited favor that we receive comes and is connected to us only for faith. Only for faith. By faith. Through faith. By means of faith. Faith is not passive belief. It is an action. Hence it is accessed through instrumentality like prayer, like the scripture. It's reading, it's study, it's proclamation. Like Holy Communion, like baptism, like remembrance of baptism, like singing of hymns, like worship. All the, all the instruments of, of grace the means of grace function as foci of faith that, through which we are connected to this very act, this very hilasterion act and person, Christ Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? What becomes what? Boasting, 27. Verse 27, we broke through. What becomes of boasting? We've been waiting for this for a long time. The Jewish Christians were boasting about being good Jewish Christians. My goodness, we 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 follow the law. We follow the law. We we keep the dietary regulations. We keep the clothing regulations. We keep the field regulations. We keep the blood regulations. We do all the good things that good Jews do, and those Gentile Christians ought to be doing it too, and they should follow our example. Hmm. If they want to be a good Christian, they should become good Jews. Oh. And besides that, we're descendants of oh. Father Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham. We're we are Jews. We are Pharisees. Yeah. Don't forget the sniffing. That's right. We're yeah. We're circumcised. <laughs> sniffing. He left the scissors. He left. Well, the chopping. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> The blood sacrifice in Mormon. All right, that's where it's coming from. What then? What becomes of boasting? Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded by what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith, righteousified, dikaiosuneid, to use the Greek word, justified by faith apart from the works prescribed by the law. It's not through snipping, it's not through wearing certain kinds of clothing. It's not through blood regulations. It's not through avoiding ham and cheese sandwiches. It's through faith. Apart from the works of the law. Can you tell me, did he have a mouse in his pocket? Or who is this we he's talking about? Mouse in his pocket. For we hold. He is making his affirmation. Actually, in a sense, it is. Really? He is telling these... Roman Jewish Christians, you're wrong on many levels. You've been picking on these poor Gentile Christians. It's not by works. 
but by faith. We hold that a person is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> well, yeah, the Jewish Christians would say... He's him in the face with that, isn't he? Of Gentiles who have become Jews. <laughs> or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. He threw down the gauntlet. Whammo. Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, we don't have multiple gods. And he will justify the circumcised Jews, Jewish Christians, on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through the same faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now he's going to explain that in chapter 4. Before we go on into chapter 4, and we will tonight. <gasps> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Let's take a moment to think, to take a look at this. Are there any questions? There better not be any between 21 and 26. <laughs> we, we, we killed that one. 27 through 31. The context, remember, is we got Jewish Christians, we got Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians are essentially being told they are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And Paul has spent the last two chapters now telling them, no. And now he's been addressing here the Jewish Christians, and he's saying to them, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that does good, no, not one. He does this dynamic citation from the Old Testament, pulling from multiple Psalms and from Isaiah to present the depravity of fallen human beings. And then he says, it is not by our own works, it is not by good works, it is, it is through God's righteousness alone. <clears throat> and we receive God's righteousness through faith. And Christ did it all. Christ paid for sin was the place where sin is paid for. And we receive righteousness through faith. We are connected to it through faith. And therefore, you don't have any right to boast, to brag, to talk about your ancestry in Judaism as if it helps you any. In fact, it's excluded by the law of faith. And what that means is, if salvation is by faith and not through works, then what good does your ancestry do you? Yeah, that would, being a Jew would be a hindrance, I would think. Because you're always thinking about that law. Exactly, in a sense. <laughs> he, he was, the one of the, earlier, in an earlier chapter, he asked the simple question, is it an advantage? In a sense, it's an advantage because we know the law. But in truth, it's no advantage at all. None. There is no advantage to being born a Jewish ancestry in terms of salvation. We simply have access and have had it for a long time to the law. We know, we should know how far we fall short and that we have no business boasting or judging others. That's what we should know. Now, do we do that? Heck no. 
We boast and we judge others, mostly Gentile Christians. Gosh, the church hasn't changed, has it? <laughs> no, not bad. Those who've been in the church forever are really good at boasting and, and judging others. How long they've been members? And... I've been a member now on 50 years. I've always done it this way. Ain't never done it that way before. I've been a member here for 50 years, and this has always been my pew. Get out of here. <laughs> Don't you see my name on it? <laughs> That's about right. Huh? The, the, the warping of the pew seat fits my butt. Now move. Right. <laughs> In our case, the cushions of the chairs. That's right. My butt dimple. By that of works, no, but by the law of faith. Verse 28. For we hold... That a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, prescribed by the law. Uh, works, ergon, I have it written on the board here. Ergon, works, the word from which we get energy. Interesting. Namu, law. It's the word that is used for the law of the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the covenant is the Namu. Well, a unit of work is an erg. Uh huh. That's yeah, that's where we get it from. Get the word from. And uh, work is described as anything being moved, and it takes. And then you come back and you define energy by what it takes to do work. Uh huh. We get the word from Greek. Work of the law. The erg of the law. You could translate it in a sense. <laughs> Or is God the God of Jews only? There are not multiple. God is not the God of the Jews only. God is the God of all people, period. And since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. You've been bragging about being circumcised. <laughs> Nothing to brag about there. Not a blooming thing. The same faith that saves you, you Jewish Christian, saves that stinking Gentile Christian, even though he is uncircumcised. Wow. That's what he's saying. Just be, he doesn't keep the law. He doesn't keep the dietary regulations or any of that stuff. And it's faith that saves him. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Because I can just hear, and I'm sure he could hear in his mind, because he dealt with them many times, the Jewish Christians saying, oh, Well, I never, you're doing away with the law. You're, you're, you're breaking the tablets. You're destroying the law. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. By no means means. May gunoita. Hell no. <laughs> Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Hell no. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That's interesting. Well, you know, and Jesus said, That's I right. come not to thing. fulfill or to abolish the law, but to, to fulfill, fulfill it. it. Yeah. Exactly. So faith in Jesus is connecting yourself to that which fulfills it. Well, let's go ahead and move into chapter 4 and see what he says. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham? 
our ancestor according to the flesh. Again, he's talking to Jewish Christians who've been bragging about Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham. You ought to be listening to us. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. Was it his work going into the tent with Hagar and producing Ishmael? No. Pretty, pretty good work. <laughs> no, 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 no. Stop nodding your head, Rich. <laughs> no. I'm doing it for Leo. He's holding himself in. He's about to bust. I'm sitting here close enough so he can hit me with the roof. <laughs> for if Abraham was justified by the work by works, he has something to boast about. He has nothing to boast about. I mean, he did not trust, he and Sarah both had such a lack of faith at that particular moment. They did not believe that God would get God's will done through Sarah. So, what? Well, here's my handmaid, take her, go into that tent over there and produce a child. Since God doesn't know I'm an old hag, you, you know, go take her and have a kid through them. That way. Trying to get God's will done for God in your own way is... The works is trying to save yourself by works. Paul actually says that over in Galatians. Comes right out and says it. You trying to justify yourself by keeping the law is just like Abraham and Hagar in a tent producing Ishmael. Salvation by faith, <clears throat> by grace through faith, is Abraham and Sarah producing Isaac. An absolute miracle. So he, he likens what the Jews, the Jewish Christians, thought was most important, which is keeping the law. He likened that to Abraham and Hagar digging in a tent. And here he's kind of alluding to it. This is after he wrote the letter to the Galatians, by the way. For if Abraham was justified by works, he's something to boast about. <laughs> well, no, he wasn't. But we all know Abraham, and now he was. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, there we go, believed in my translation, and I think most translations yeah. will say this. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Poppycock. Abraham faithed God. For what says, saith the scripture, what does the scripture say? Abraham epistuisen. Abraham exercised belief. He faithed in God. He faithed God. He yeah. took the promises that God had made to him and he acted upon them. He didn't just hear them and receive them and say, That's nice, God. Thank you very much. <clears throat> He actually put them into action. He faithed God. And it, the faith, the active belief, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Another word we don't use often in modern reckoned. English. Reckoned. <laughs> I mean, I used to ask my granddad a question 
you know, what do you think about this? And do you think that he's right about this and such? And my granddad would say, I reckon so. Mm -hmm. That's a good old country term. It's, it's still used a lot in, like, up in southern Missouri, southern, southern northern Missouri, Arkansas. Certain areas still use that, but it's not common vernacular anymore. No. It, the faith, was reckoned, accounted to him, considered to him, imputed to him as righteousness. Not works, not in the tent with Hagar making Ishmael by his own strength and ability, but acting on the promises of God. That was what was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. When you work and you get paid, is your employer giving you something? No, you're getting what you earned. When Carol, when you get your paycheck, is it a gift from your employer? Mm, no. No. You worked for it. You worked hard for it, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying here. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who, without works, trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. He didn't do anything to earn it. The faith connects him to the source of righteousness, and the righteousness then flows into him. That's another way of looking at it. So also David speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Quote. And here my translation uses the word imputes. Imputes. Yeah. It actually uses the word imputes wow. for reckons. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Imputes. Imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and those and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. Not hold accountable for sin. Remember, Lee, we got to do something first. We don't just skip that before you get out of jail. Favoritism. I, I know. Favoritism. I know. <laughs> you don't all get it, man. You don't all get Boy, it. Boy, wouldn't it be great if all did? I wish all did. But apparently... Not all wanted. Well, it seems like it's it's easy. I mean, it's not easy. The work's hard. <laughs> yeah. But to receive grace, I mean, you believe. It should be easy. And you act on the faith that, that believe. Mm-hmm. It's that acting thing, that little pretty little word. Is it? That's the monkey wrench. <laughs> That's a tough one. It's actually acting putting your faith, your belief into action is faith. As I but said, you can mess up like Abraham and still. Of course, you can mess up. We mess up all the time. Abraham messed up big time <laughs> on more than one occasion. And Sarah laughed too. Ooh, well, yeah. Where did you get it? That's kind of comical. <laughs> and then she lied. She says, I didn't laugh. Yeah, that's right. And then she, she lied. lied about laughing. And God still used her. Imagine that. And you got to tell you, it took. I mean, we talk about Abraham's faith. I'm sorry, Paul. 
You should have talked about Sarah's faith. She's the one who had to carry that blooming baby for nine months at 100 years old or thereabouts, 90 years old. That wouldn't be easy. Not, not even close. That would take a lot of faith. Lee and I were laughing about this same thing. We said, if Abraham was 100 and God told him that he was going to have a child, he probably didn't hear him. Oh, you said what? Right there. Right there. <laughs> Is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised? You, you're saying favoritism. If this were truly favoritism, mm -hmm. Lee, it would be only pronounced on the circumcised. <laughs> Is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? We say, here's that mouse again, pinky in the brain. We say faith was reckoned, imputed. I'm going to change reckoned here to imputed. Just like Jimmy over there. Faith was imputed to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it imputed to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Man, they were thought this circumcision stuff was so very important, and then they realized, oops. Faith was reckoned, faith was imputed, faith was accounted to him as God's righteousness. God's righteousness was, he was, he was labeled as being as righteous as God for faith before surgery. Wow. That kind of makes mud of your claim that that circumcision and the other works are important, doesn't it? Did he have historical background for that, or did he just make that up? No, it's straight out. If you read Genesis, order and sequence, it's prior to the circumcision story. Yeah, I know. Where that's not exactly in order, Genesis. Well, those stories actually are. Yeah, those three <laughs> those, are, those huh? particular stories about Abraham, yeah. <laughs> those are in sequence. Okay. Um, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So it became an after-the-fact mm -hmm. event. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe. Scratch that. All who faith. <laughs> the purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who faith without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. Because Abraham had righteousness reckoned to him for faith prior to his circumcision, so also these Gentiles over here can have righteousness reckoned to them for their faith and they not be circumcised. He just made his argument. And it wasn't circular. <laughs> this time. Well, now or yet. <laughs> I'm sure it's Without being, uh, um, and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. Let me go back. The purpose was to make, go back into verse 11. The purpose was to make him, Abraham, the ancestor of all who faith without being circumcised and who ha thus have righteousness reckoned to them. The Jewish Christians were bragging about having Abraham as their ancestor. Guess what? The Gentiles do too. 
because they exercise faith and aren't circumcised, and faith is reckoned to them as righteousness. Abraham exercised faith and wasn't circumcised, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And it was after that that circumcision occurred. And likewise, the ancestor of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow the example of the faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. So it's not just, he's the ancestor of all people who exercise faith. Okay, would it not be fair to say that the Jewish Christians thought that being circumcised was failing? They probably did. You're being charitable to them, trying to trying to uh, well, it's be an act of generous. Mm -hmm. That's a really bloody act of <laughs> for half of the population. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm sure that they might have tried to make the argument that that circumcision was an act of faith. Just like baptism is an act of faith. Usually circumcision and baptism are directly connected as signs of membership and entry into the covenant community. All right. And therefore, since baptism is seen as an act of faith, means of grace, so also they may have made an argument or could have made an argument that that circumcision was as well. But it is so tightly related to, to the Jewish way of life. It predates the law, but it has been codified within the law. So it's part of the law, although it predates it. And it's so closely connected with what it means to be a Jew that it almost is ripped out of. It, it is just as... It, it's the situation that we have among some Christians who have made baptism into a good work and not a means of grace. Who say, well, you've got to be baptized by immersion as a believer for it to be real baptism, and you've got to do it knowing what you're doing. Believer's baptism concept. Mm -hmm. They make it into a work. They make it. I'm sure that if they were not using circumcision as a litmus test for who could really be in the community of faith and not, it could in theory have developed as a, a means of grace because many of these works could. But it was so, so perverted by the Jewish Christians and used as the litmus test for who was in and who was out that it, it, it couldn't function that way. They made it into a good work or attempted to make it into a work. A work of the law. An ergon nabu. That's what they did to it. They ruined it. They ruined it. By tackling this, he headed off all the other problems of the minor laws that you had to be followed. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you he hit the big one and that's the biggest one. If you can hit if you can hit out of the park any argument in favor of circumcision as a requirement for membership in the community, then you can knock out anything else. Dietary regulations, blood purity laws, everything for membership in the community. Now, you, you, know, you can make other arguments, but for being a Christian, that does it. 
What did he say about baptism? Paul? Mm-hmm. Well, 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 we'll get to that. Okay, that's right. <laughs> that's going to be reading. He speaks thing. extensively about baptism. Yes, he does. And it's not all that far away. <laughs> Any questions? Because we're just about out of time. I'm going to go ahead and read 13, 14, and 15, but we're going to pick up at 13 next week, just, just to finish out the last couple of minutes. For the promise that he would inherit the whole world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law. It came earlier, by the way. A lot earlier, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be his heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. He just slapped them upside the head big time, friends. Because they had been boasting and bragging about being heirs of Abraham because they kept the law. And they were promised the world in that. And he says, nah. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null. And the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there violation. Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> I wanted to get to this point yeah, to leave yeah. us with this thought. This could become what is known as antinomianism. Nice big word. Antinomianism. Namu, namas, nomian, antinomianism. A denial of the law in every respect as having any role to play in Christian living. And right here in verse 15 you have the core of the argument that can be made from Paul that Paul is an Antinomian. Now it's wrong when you read all of Paul. But when you cherry pick or something, it's easy to make him say whatever you wanted to say. And they love to pull that little passage right there and use it. I want you to think. And I invite you to read on ahead. But think about what we've just talked about already and what Paul has done with regards to circumcision and dietary regulations, other aspects of the law elsewhere. What he talked about earlier on in the letter with regards to the role of the law. What we looked at throughout chapter 3 in terms of sin not being the violation of specific laws but simply falling short of the glory of God failing to hit the, the target your arrow falls short doesn't hit the target think, think about the, the context of this statement here and consider the words for the law brings wrath but where there is no law Neither is there violation.
You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2008 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.